Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we want to again say welcome and let you know how glad we are that you've chosen to join with us in the worship of our risen Lord Jesus. Uh, if we've not yet met, my name is Brett. I'm one of the elders here at Veritas Church. I'll be at the back door after service. Please make a point to just get my attention, uh, shake my hand, introduce yourself to me. I'd love to uh, see more of you after service. Would you go ahead and take your copy of God's Word with me as we consider a portion in Mark's Gospel? Would you turn in, Mark to, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8? If you're using one of the hardback Bibles in front of you, you'll find our portion of Scripture this morning on page 792. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you are most welcome to take a copy of that hardback that's there with you as our gift to you, and you'll find the portion of Scripture that we are in again on page 792. Mark chapter 8. Let's begin reading as we hear God's word in verse 11. The Pharisees came and again began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, and got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some of the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Would you join in praying with me? Let's ask our God and Father, who's graciously promised to give us what we need, asking for his aid as we consider his word. Father, we do come to you this morning just as we have sung, and it is the desire of our hearts that we would be those people, your people, who are convinced that the best things for our life is not our will, but for your will to be done. And we are convinced in knowing that the way in which we know your will, the way in which you direct our lives, the way in which you illuminate our path is through your very words. And so we ask, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your law. Help us, Father, to see Jesus as he is, as you've revealed him to us by word and by spirit. We ask and we pray specifically for the ministry of your Spirit, for the illumination that He brings, that you would help us to not merely see words on a page, but that we would see Him as the living Word, that you would open our eyes, especially if they've never been opened before. If our hearts have been dull and dimmed, Father, we pray, by your sovereign grace, would you reveal the glory of God in the face of Christ to us this morning. Father, mindful of your great ability to do that, we know of your gracious heart 
and that same ability to continue to show us more of the glory of yourself. How greatly we need to see Christ lifted up this morning. We come to you as your people, asking in the name of Christ, in faith, upon the promise that you've given, that you would be faithful to your word and that you would, Lord, cause it to bring about your good purposes, we pray. Amen. In teaching upon really the foundations of Christian belief and practice, John Calvin writes, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. Calvin was on to something that is most clearly seen in our scriptures and was basically summarizing one of the most foundational doctrines given to us in our Bibles, that if we want to know something of ourselves, truly as we are, and we want to know something of who God is, we must consider this God. And as helpful and as really true as that is, that truth raises a great question. Because if we hold that truth that's given to us in our Bibles, alongside other truth that's given to us in our Bibles, we might find ourselves scratching our heads. Because the question that should become apparent to us is, how do we look upon the face of this God considering all that the scriptures teach concerning the blinding sinfulness of our sin? Or, how do we gaze upon God if scripture also teaches that we're not only ignorant of him, but in our natural state, we are actually indignant towards him? Meaning, if our great need is to see God, and yet the great problem of my heart is that I don't want to see him, how do we make sense of what the Bible teaches? Well, the answer to, one of, to this quandary is one of the great teachings of Scripture. Yes, our greatest need is really this morning to look upon God, to see Him as He is. And yes, at the same time we say the corruption of sin presents, uh, prevents us from doing so. But Christ has come to open blind eyes and illuminate darkened hearts. And the portion of this scripture that's before us this morning declares to us this wonderfully good news. So let's consider here in Mark chapter 8, really these three portions of, 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 of account that Mark gives to us. And let's consider them along these lines. Let's consider, first of all, those who are unwilling to see. And then notice how Mark speaks of those who are unable to see. And then let's close by looking at the one who opens eyes to see. Back in verse 11, notice how Mark draws to our attention, there are those who are unwilling to see. He says in verse 11 that the Pharisees, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. This is not the first time that we've seen these Pharisees come out to question Jesus, as they are really the religious separatists devoted to the tradition of law-keeping. Mark shows in his account how they are very often set at odds with Jesus. Uh, his most serious and really his most recent rebuke would be that of hypocrisy. You can probably just get, glance over at your Bibles at chapter 7, and see where Jesus engages with these scribes and Pharisees concerning their hypocrisy. And now we see them coming out to Jesus to argue with him, Mark says, demanding a sign from heaven in order to test Jesus. Now, as you hear that, keep a couple of things in mind. On one hand, they are standing upon scriptural practice as miraculous signs have always accompanied God's prophets testifying to the validity of the direct revelation that they are bringing forth. 
So in one sense, they are standing upon scriptural practice to say, if you are speaking for God, then show us the accompanying signs that validate this revelation, just as God has always done. From Moses to Isaiah to Elijah, show us a sign. On one hand, they are standing upon scriptural practice. But on the other hand, their demand here in Mark chapter 8 is completely ridiculous because Christ has been plainly teaching and plainly demonstrating his authority all along the way. Going back to Mark chapter 1, he heals a leper and sends this healed leper back to the priest, Mark says, as a testimony for them. Look what this Christ has done. He's healed this man. In chapter 2, he confirmed his authority again to forgive sins by commanding this paralytic to rise and to walk. He casts out demons, he raises the dead, but in all of this, the religious leaders continue to insist that he does this actually by the power of Satan. And the ministry of this Jesus is actually fueled by demonic power, chapter 3. And Mark tells us at this point, the Pharisees have already tipped their hand. They've been scheming since chapter 3, verse 6, to destroy Jesus. So when they come to him here, in this argumentative posture, seeking to discredit him, because that's what they mean, to test him, demanding a sign from him, from heaven, Jesus calls it for what it is, and he rebukes them. Their problem is not a lack of testimony at this point, but it is the simple fact that they are unwilling to see the testimony that's made plain before them. And so Christ refuses to give them any more evidence since they refuse to see the testimony that is put before them. And the response of Christ in verse 12, it's a very solemn one, isn't it? This could also be read or understood as, I solemnly declare no sign will be given. And the phrase there, this generation, that ought to cause our ears to perk up as we think about the illumination of Scripture. And this phrase, this generation, really serves as a hyperlink to other portions of Scripture that help illuminate this portion here in Mark 8. Where else has God spoken in a judgmental negative tone and term of this generation? Well, we could think of Numbers chapter 32. The Lord's anger was kindled against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all that generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And what is Moses recording for us there? The same thing that the psalmist records and really provides as a commentary on this in Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That generation. The generation that saw the signs, yet refused to believe. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the Red Sea split, and God deliver His people and crush His enemies before them. They saw the pillar of fire by night. They saw the cloud by day. But when they came up to the border of this promised land, they refused to believe the commandment of God and to step over that border by faith. And Jesus, here in Mark 8, sighs deeply, groaning in his spirit as if to say, some things never change. They're still unwilling to see what is plain before them. And he left them. He got into the boat, and he went to the other side. Hear the warning of Scripture. Before we go any further, please hear the warning in this portion. 
A repeated unwillingness to see what is made plain before you is a frightening and a dangerous place to be in. Verse 13 is more than just geographical information, noting that Jesus moved from point A to point B. Because what Mark records there is not just a travel guide of what Christ did, but in many ways illuminates this warning of Christ actually leaving unbelieving sinners to themselves. One of the worst forms of God's wrath is when he gives hardened hearts over to their desires. He leaves them to themselves in their unbelief. He got in the boat and he left them. Please do not make this horrible mistake in thinking that God has somehow left himself without a witness. There is not one person who will stand before God and be able to say, I didn't know. If only you had made yourself plain, then I I would have known, but I didn't know. Paul would write in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Do you hear those words? For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That's why Paul then goes on in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28 to repeat these horrible words. God gave them up. God gave them up to the lust of their impurity. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. The demands of the Pharisees and their unwillingness to see what is plain before them stands as a very strong warning to us this morning. Therefore, hear the sense of urgency within Scripture that calls you to repent of sin and to believe in what God has revealed in His Son Christ, there will come a day when it is too late. But if you can hear my voice this morning and you hear the declaration of Scripture right now, it is not. And that's why the Scriptures continually compel us with this sense of urgency. Do not think I'll deal with this some other day. The testimony of God's divine attributes and His reality of His creative power and authority are made plain. And the Pharisees stand to us as this warning of those unwilling to see. But it's not only a helpfulness in seeing those in their unwillingness to see, there's also this Revelation of those who are actually unable to see. We see this in the lives of the disciples. Look down at verse 14. Mark tells us, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? 
What's happening here? Well, in seeking really to capitalize upon their commute across the lake, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach and to warn these disciples. But Mark front loads this whole section with a tiny detail that's going to become really important later in the narrative. And getting into this boat, they forget to bring bread. And no doubt the time traveling across the lake is a good time to replenish, to eat. They're going to be hungry. No doubt, if history proves anything, there's going to be more ministry on the other side. Now is a perfect time to eat. But the significance of this detail that they forgot to bring bread, it becomes clear, as Mark is showing, they completely miss the point of Jesus' warning to them. Notice how this unfolds. Really seeking to have a bit of a heart-to-heart here, Jesus warns his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, leaven, as you probably know, is often used in Scripture as a symbolic image of a sort of doctrine or practice that's pervasive, that it's corrupting, and the emphasis most often is that it must be put away. But the joining of the Pharisees and of Herod in this warning, it seems to sound like an unlikely pairing. What is it that is uniting these two unlikely pairs, because the Pharisees were these religiously devoted separatists, and Herod is devoted to worldly lusts and licentiousness. What is Jesus combining when he takes these two and says, beware of the leaven, beware of the Pharisees and of Herod? The overt sensuality of Herod and the religious emphasis of the Pharisees, they do share one glaring similarity. Do you know what it is? Both had opportunity to hear the testimony of Scripture, and both refused to believe. Think about the Pharisees, well acquainted with the Scriptures, poring over the teaching of God, yet blind to the person of Christ. So much so, do you remember that portion in John's Gospel, in John chapter 5, where he rebukes them, where he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life? And Herod, well acquainted with the Scriptures too, Because Mark would just record a few chapters earlier how John the Baptist faithfully and forcefully preached the teaching of Scripture. He heard John gladly, Mark tells us, yet he kept him in prison. But ultimately, he responded to John's preaching by silencing him, by beheading him, rather than repenting and believing. And in light of these tragedies, Jesus says, watch out. Beware. He warns the disciples of the deceitfulness of sin and the hardening of heart. Essentially, it's the same echo that comes to us in our scriptures in Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And like leaven, this hardening, it's hidden. It often works slowly and gradually, but eventually becomes pervasive. Christ can be working, he could be speaking right in front of you but you fail to hear his voice, you fail to see him for who he is, and certainly this is a a necessary, another pressing warning for us to hear that Christ would give to his disciples. But this warning is lost. It's lost upon the disciples entirely. Jesus is speaking to them about matters of the heart, and they are consumed with matters of the stomach. We have no bread. Teachers, parents, 
Can you relate? You've been there in family worship, or you've been in the car driving, unpacking this wonderful doctrine that you see in the scriptures, and all you get out of it is, where's my juice box? (laughs) Jesus is going after matters of the heart, and they are saying, are we going to have enough to eat? Jesus, he speaks of leaven in their minds. They immediately play the word association game, leaven, bread. John, do we have enough bread? And then they're completely discussing amongst themselves, worrying that they do not have enough bread for the 13 of them as they cross this lake. Just as Jesus is warming up with an important teaching concerning the danger of the Pharisees and of Herod, he hears this whispering to themselves over the worries for insufficient food for the journey. Mindful of that, do you hear the concern in verse 17? Jesus then asks a series of five rhetorical questions. You know what these are. The sort of questions you ask not to garner information, but you ask them to make a point because the answer is so obvious. Christ is concerned by what they do not yet hear. And the implication is that there is something so obvious, so plainly visible, but they are not seeing it. So let's ask, what is it that they cannot see or understand? Because if they really saw Jesus for who he is, they would have no concerns for lack of bread. Or to put it this way, their great concern for bread exposes their ignorance of who Jesus really is. The very fact that you are worried about being provided for shows you, you have no idea who I am. You saw the signs. Your nose was in a basket of leftovers. But have you seen me? Do you not understand? You are concerned about one loaf when you have the bread of life in your boat. Do you not yet understand? You see, the failure of the disciples is the failure to see Jesus as he is. And this failure then prevents them from actually hearing the warning that he's giving to them. Do you see how tragic this is? Christ is there continuing to minister to them. And yet they miss out on the ministry of Christ to them because they don't see him for who he is. Forget about the warning of the Pharisees and of Herod. That's, that's gone. we got to go back to square one. Do you even know who I am? Do you even see me? Church, the same concern, <laughs> it remains for us today. Perhaps you are convicted of this and are reminded of this even in your own life this week. The same concern remains for us today. Our Failure to see Christ as he is causes us to become anxious for what we do not have and blinded to the provision that is ours in Christ. How often do we allow worry and anxiety, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things to blind us from seeing what we ought to already see? How easily you and I become distracted and concerned over something that Jesus has already proved himself faithful in. And yet, we worry. And we miss out. We don't hear. We don't perceive. Do you see Christ as he really is? You see him. But do you see him? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you, are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who do not know God, they seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Unwilling to see. Unable to see. But thankfully, Mark also records the one who opens eyes to see. Look back at your Bibles in Mark chapter 8. Here again, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. And so people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he'd spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Now certainly if you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, you know this is not the first time that Jesus has healed a blind man, but the manner in which he does so is fascinating. Consider, first of all, just the inclusion of this healing in Mark's narrative. The fact that this is recorded here. Mark is the only Gospel account that includes this particular healing here. Consider its placement within this section and how it serves really to highlight the significance of what Christ is doing here. Now let's do this. Let's zoom out for a moment, put our wide-angle lens on within the Gospel of Mark and consider where Mark places this within the narrative of what he's been unfolding concerning the good news of Christ. Zoom out for a couple chapters and remember that Christ has already fed 5,000 plus people. And then shortly after that, on the other side of the lake, he feeds 4,000 people with insufficient means, showing his all-sufficiency. And yet, after each feeding, the 5,000 and the 4,000, what does Mark record? Mark records and he notes the failure of the disciples to understand the significance of the miracle both in Mark 6 and in Mark 8. And then as you read, you, what you see is that after the feeding of the 5,000, what does Jesus go and do? He opens the ears of a deaf man in Mark chapter 7. And after the feeding of the 4,000, what does Jesus go and do? He opens the eyes of a blind man in Mark chapter 8. All of this is accentuated by Jesus' penetrating question to the disciples in Mark 8, 17. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? The inclusion of this healing reveals the significance of this healing and what Mark is laying out for us in regards to seeing Christ as he is, and seeing ourselves as the scriptures proclaim that we are. The significance of this healing is not just a mere display of the, the raw ability of Christ to heal a blind man. It's a divinely placed word picture illustrating the problem here of spiritual blindness and the ultimate cure, which is Christ himself. What he's showing by healing in this way illuminates the reality of what we're seeing in the narrative. The disciples were not completely blind. 
they'd received the word of the kingdom. They knew Jesus to be this teacher sent by God. And yet they did not fully see. They did not fully understand. And so Jesus' question to the blind man in verse 23, do you see anything? It's really an echo of his question to the disciples back in verse 18, do you see? And the response of the man is really just the commentary upon the condition of the disciples. I see, but I don't fully see. I see, but things are a bit fuzzy. The disciples saw, but not clearly. And they still could not see the glory of Christ, and they would still need further healing from their spiritual blindness. Friends, the concern over sight and the need to see Jesus is not a problem left to first century followers. It certainly hounds us today. The word of God remains relevant, not only warning us, but teaching us and pointing us to this great truth. Do we see Jesus as he really is? Are we so blind that like these men, we miss his warnings and we fail to understand? Are you still hardened? Having eyes, do you not yet see? The scriptures compel us again and again how sin has not only corrupted our actions, but our minds. It's dimmed our hearts to where we become darkened. By nature, we are spiritually blind to the glory and the goodness of who God is. By nature, we are unable to see, we are unable to hear, we are unable to perceive the spiritual truth even if our minds are conceptually hearing words, understanding the definitions, hearing the logic of a phrase and a clause, and could even repeat back, what was the sermon about? What is Mark chapter 8 about? It is possible to know words, terms, even theological concepts, and be blind. Paul would write to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He would write a second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In their case, those unable to see, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But as you keep reading your Bibles, you are brought to this place where you say, but thanks be to God, because Christ is not only the faithful prophet who brings us the word of God, Christ sends his spirit to provide the inward work of illumination so that our spiritual blindness is healed. The, this illumination, it is a work of the triune God. The glory of, the God, of God the Father, shining through the mediation of the Son, made effective by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to cause a person to be able to say, I see. I, I see. And this is wonderfully good news for anyone who is spiritually blind. Spiritual blindness is most certainly fatal, but it's not without cure. Because Paul would go on in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness in creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This same God who is able to out of nothing speak into nothingness and say, let there be light, is able to speak into darkened minds of sinful unbelievers and say, let there be light, that they might see the glory of this God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Spiritual blindness is fatal 
but it's curable. Now think for a moment as we close as to why that really matters. Why does that matter for you? Why does that matter for this church? Why does that matter for a people who would say, we are called by God to Christ, sustained by His Spirit to live for His glory? Why does this doctrine of illumination matter to us? For one, it's great motivation and encouragement in all our evangelism. As we share the gospel with others, speaking of the power of God to forgive sins, to renew minds, to restore us to himself, friends, we speak with great hope and great confidence. Yes, we have a strong doctrine of sin, but we have a strong doctrine of illumination and what the ministry of the Holy Spirit does to darken sinful hearts. While we speak to men and women who are spiritually blind, even as the God of this world, as Paul says, is blinding unbelievers, we speak fully aware of that, yet not without hope. We evangelize, we testify, we share, we point to Jesus, all with great confidence, because we know that our Lord Jesus is the one who actually brings sight to the blind. Church, let me encourage you, labor on in faith, Continue being faithful in the opportunity, even as Pastor Greg led us this morning in prayer, praying for opportunities for evangelism. Continue to speak of Christ. Continue to pray for opportunities to share of the gospel of Christ. As we raise our children, parents, keep pointing them to the reality of the good news in Christ. Yes, let them know the tragedy of sin. And let them know the glory of the gospel. Continue to point them to, evangelize them, encouraging them in the gospel, all the while knowing they're not hearing me. But I know one who opens eyes. I know one who opens ears. Don't be discouraged by cries for juice boxes after you give a plea for the gospel. Keep laboring on in faith. And as we seek to evangelize our co-workers and our neighbors, we speak with the confidence that God opens blind eyes. But I've worked with this man for 20 years. You have no idea the callousness upon this man's heart. Yeah, God opens blind eyes. He unstops deaf ears. He heals the dullness of heart. And as we patiently share with unbelieving spouses, we are mindful of a, of a Jesus who opens blind eyes and who illuminates dull hearts. We find ourselves praying heartily with the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1, that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. This doctrine is of great encouragement to us in our evangelism, but it's also a great encouragement to us and a great motivation to us for our continued sanctification and growth and godliness. The healing of this blind man in this, these two stages shows us that when God converts sinners, we do not see all that there is to see in regards to our sinfulness and His glory. We see enough to know, I am sinful, and He is holy, and Christ is the only reconciler between these two. But we, like this blind man, even upon that realization, we could say, I see, but it's kind of fuzzy. I'm not quite sure how all these pieces fit together. This testimony of Scripture is great encouragement to us in our own sanctification and growth and godliness. Because we, Christian, are dependent upon the illumination of the Spirit, not only for conversion, but for ongoing sanctification conformed to the image of His Son. Divine illumination enables us as God's people to see with greater clarity the unseen spiritual realities of God, of our salvation, 
and the hope of heaven. We're not given the downloaded import of everything that there is to know upon the moment of conversion. And yet God has not abandoned us in our ignorance. That he's given to us himself and uniting us to himself. That we might know more and see more clearly of what it is that we have in him. Think specifically just about these areas. Think about how we need the illumination of the glory of God. Considering our culture's infatuation with individualism, pragmatism, quick fixes, we have great need to simply gaze at the glory of God. The knowledge of God is the most important gift that can be given. And according to Jesus, it is the very essence of life. The ignorance of God, it's what destroys a people. But the knowledge of God is what brings true wisdom and and lasting treasure. And therefore, we come to Christ asking that he would open our eyes to see with greater clarity of the glory of our triune God. We come to him prayerfully seeking to know the excellence of his worth, seeking to meditate upon his perfections. We want to know something of his infinite, unchanging, most blessed, most glorious worth. We come and we we rejoice knowing that he's full of majesty, that he's working his sovereign purposes for his own good pleasure. We come asking for the illumination that we might see more clearly that he is without bounds, without limits, that he's abundant in power, and his understanding is without measure. We think upon his loving kindness and his goodness and his patience and it's how it's poured out upon his people for all eternity. And we read and we hear that he's abundant in mercy, that he's most wise, most holy, wonderfully faithful in all of his glory. And for these people, his reasons, his people pray, Lord, show us your glory. Show us more of yourself. I see, but I want to see more. Open our eyes to the wonder of who you are. We need this illumination to clearly see the glory of God. But not only just to consider the glory of God, we are greatly helped by the same illumination when we consider the glory of our salvation. As we said, we first come to faith, awakened to the sense of our guilt and the wonder of God's grace. But these themes of guilt and grace And gratitude, they are meant to fill out the remainder of our days as the very essence of what we rejoice in and revel in. It's the will of the Father through the ministry of Christ by the work of the Spirit that we are awakened to the sinfulness of our sin, the wonder of our deliverance, and the assurance of our adoption of sons. Consider those aspects of our salvation. Do you know the sinfulness of your sin? Could you know more of it? Do you know the wonder of your deliverance in Christ? Could you meditate further upon it? Do you know something of the assurance that is yours because you are adopted as his son? Could you know more of that? Could you see it more clearly? It's by this further opening of our spiritual eyes that we gain this deeper experiential knowledge of these wonderful biblical doctrines, and we find a wealth of spiritual treasure to rejoice in, what we're saved from and what we're saved into. But not only the glory of God, not only the glory of our salvation, we need illumination for the glory of the coming kingdom. In John Bunyan's allegory, paints so well for us. That reminder how Christ grants us the ability to catch glimpses of the celestial city and to gaze just for a bit, dimly, but for a bit, upon its glory. The the illumination of this future age, the age to come, where Christ returns and establishes his reign in perfect righteousness, that Illumination serves to strengthen believers in their present sufferings and fill us with hope for the age yet to come. 
And while we rejoice, no doubt right now, for God's faithful provision in this earthly life, hopefully at the same time, we are finding our souls being filled with longing and aching for this greater intensity of this kingdom that is to come. So we do not lose heart, as Paul says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not into the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We need greater illumination to consider the glories of those promises, especially as we find ourselves walking through seasons of suffering or disappointment from this present earthly world. Lord, open my eyes to see the glory of your coming kingdom. So I ask you, do you see? Do you understand? And do you long to see these glories with greater clarity? If you do, I have such good news for you and that our Lord Jesus is a gracious Savior. That our greatest need is most certainly to see him as he is. And that in his sovereign grace that he overcomes the hardness of heart, the blindness of sight, and the dullness of mind. So has he opened your eyes? Are you among those this morning that even though you say, I don't see Clearly as I want to, I can see. Has he opened your eyes? Then praise God for his grace and ask him that he would show you and this church more of himself. Has he awakened you this morning to the fact that you are really blind? Then cast yourself upon him and come to him in faith and say, Look, I am blind, but open my eyes that I might see. That is the wondrous good news that should cause us to laugh because of how good it actually is. Our Lord is well pleased to answer such prayers. The Gospels here not only testify of this, but all of Scripture proclaims it. So let's come to him this morning asking that he would do the very thing that he promises. Our God and Father, we do look to you this morning rejoicing to know Not only our greatest need, but, oh, Father, the great provision that's been given to us in your Son. We come to you this morning, confessing our great need for your ministry, this triune ministry of the glory of the Father, revealed in the Son, applied by the Spirit. Father, would you come and awaken us to the goodness of this revelation, and would you come and bring such tremendous fruit by this illumination. Not only would you bring many to faith as a result of what you do in awakening us to our blindness, but would you bring a greater sense of depth and strengthening, a greater sense of nourishment and all assurance in what is ours, not only in the guilt of sin and the grace that's given to us in Christ, but the gratitude that wells up within us because of what we know and what we've experienced in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would come, and as we asked earlier, that you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your law. Continue to cause us to be amazed, not only at the depth of our sin, but the the great heights of your grace. Continue to cause us to grow in our minds and our affections, that they might be completely fueled and clarified and strengthened by the good testimony of your scripture and what you've given to us. Lord, we want to see So help us to see more clearly. We come to you asking on the basis of your promise to us that you would do this. So grow us in this according to the faithfulness of your word, we pray. Amen. Church, as we come to the Lord's table.